Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham, speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories and storytelling. My name is David Frainer, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from the studios of Portsmouth Public Media Television. Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide people with an encouraging space in which to tell their first-person stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, using on-stage TV, radio, and public venues, and offering workshops in the art and practice of storytelling. Our goal is to help people bridge differences and build understanding and respect for one another. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking, no scoring, no judging. We believe that everyone is a storyteller and that stories shared from the heart can uplift and inspire us and bind us together as a people. Through storytelling, People from vastly different backgrounds, different places and experiences can find common ground and connection, which is critical to creating and sustaining healthy and vibrant communities. Each of our shows has a theme to help people's minds get turned on to what they have to share on that subject. Tonight's theme is disagreements and resolutions. And tonight we'll hear from five tellers they each have a 10-minute time limit in which to tell their story. Our MC, Pat Spaulding, will introduce each teller. And following the storytelling, we'll have an on-air interview with one of tonight's storytellers. But first, the reason we're here, the stories. So let's welcome Pat Spaulding to introduce the first of our five storytellers. Pat? Come on, man. Thank you, David. First up, we were going to have Andy Davis. He lives with his wife and 17-year-old daughter in the southeastern corner of the White Mountains, where he co-directs the World Fellowship Center, a peace and justice-oriented camp and retreat center. Andy's most treasured possessions are his bicycle and his tenor ukulele. He originally intended this story to be presented as part of our December show when the theme was awe and wow, but due to the proximity of Christmas, that show got canceled. So this month's theme, <laughs> by contrast, is disagreements, resolutions. Fortunately, Andy says that his story contains at least one disagreement and uh, sort of a kind of resolution. So he agreed to tell it tonight. The story is titled... Sharing the world with my brother. Come on up, Andy. Thanks, Pat. I was fortunate enough to come into the world on the heels of my identical twin brother, John or Judd. And one of the greatest gifts for me in the world has been the opportunity to see the world and learn about the world through his eyes as well as my own. But in order to get to that point, we had a certain amount to learn in the beginning about sharing and working out those little sibling difficulties. For example, when we were very young, we had a baseball card collection together. And my brother always took it more seriously than I did. But the partnership seemed to be going very well until one day my brother came into our shared bedroom to find me on the floor decorating those clean-cut ball players, giving them haircuts and facial hair more appropriate to the late 1960s. I remember clearly I had the Cubs for third baseman in one hand and a blue Bic pen in the other. 
and I was admiring the curling, cascading blue locks and blue handlebar mustache I had given him when I looked up and saw the expression on my brother's face. Fortunately, I hadn't gotten to the Red Sox cards yet. (laughs) But that was the point at which my brother dissolved our partnership and divided our collection. I got all the cards that I had decorated, and he got everything else. A few years later, we shared a newspaper route together. And we had learned a little bit from the baseball card collection. So we divided it at the outset. He did everything east of Elm Street, and I did everything west of Elm Street. And being brothers, we were a little bit competitive. So every day, it was a race to see who would get home first. But my brother was a little more competitive, so invariably, I got home and went up the steps to find him sitting on the porch with his feet up on the railing, smiling smugly down at me. Maybe he had a better work ethic. Maybe he was more eager to get to his homework. Or maybe it was because I lingered with some of my customers to hear their stories. The years passed, and we grew up, and we divided the world again. He went off to West Africa to do development work, and I went to Central America to do human rights work. But as he was finishing up his stint in the Peace Corps in Burkina Faso, I went to visit him. And I most clearly remember one special day when he didn't have to work, and we set off on bicycles together, north from his town of Kudugu, past the big Catholic church, past herds of goats and sheep who were contentedly munching the green grass that had sprung up after the recent rain. And about a mile out of town, we turned right through between two spreading baobab trees and were out onto the savannah. And it was punctuated by family compounds here and there. And there were men in conical hats working with broad hose, and women and girls in brightly covered, colored clothing carrying plastic jugs of water. But very quickly, time settled into the timelessness like childhood. We were just exploring together. So all afternoon we went from hamlet to hamlet, accepting offered gifts of calabashes of millet beer. And so we would sit under a thatched roof and talk with our hosts and talk with each other and then thank them, get back on our bicycles and take another path in another direction, meet perhaps another family, and have another calabash of millet beer. The afternoon continued on, and the sun dropped toward the horizon, and we came out of one house into the sunlight and were disoriented, and we realized that it was time that we should be getting back to my brother's house, but... We didn't know what path to take. And he asked directions in Moray, the local language, but maybe it was the millet beer. He wasn't able to get directions that would get us back where we started. So he asked if there might be a French speaker anywhere around. And we were invited into the house of the chef du village, sort of a small-town mayor. And he offered us another calabash of dolo, the millet beer. And as we sipped and hoped that we wouldn't get too much more disoriented, he gave us directions. And then 
he asked where we were from. And when we said the United States, he asked whether that was next to France. And so my brother crouched down in front of sort of a low coffee table and began moving things around and saying, we're here, and if you cross the Sahel and you travel a couple of days across the Sahara, you'll get to the Mediterranean Sea. And then you travel that far again, and you get to France. And then you hang a left, and you travel across the Atlantic Ocean, twice as far as you've already traveled, and you get to where we live. And they looked a little bit astonished. And then the mayor said very softly, Que Dieu est grand. God is great. A few days later, I headed home, taking flights back the course my brother had traced out on the coffee table. But all those years since, that humble statement has been a bit of a touchstone to me. In the face of human arrogance, my own and others, remembering que Dieu est grand gives me a little bit of hope to roll back some of what we humans all face together. And sometimes when faced with the beauty in the world, it's the only statement that makes sense. I remember when I was working in Guatemala and had to take a flight to Nicaragua for an organizational meeting. And it was a day of transcendent beauty. And so my nose was pressed against the glass of the plane window. And I was looking out at the blue of the sky and then down at the chain of volcanoes that forms the spine of Central America and looking at the variegated greens cascading down towards the turquoise of the ocean. And the words that came to my lips were, que Dieu est grand. So many times since then, I've heard words similar to that said with dangerous conviction, God bless America, or Allahu Akbar, and remembering that understated, humble awe at the world gives me a little bit of hope for our troubled world. So 30 years later, my brother still works and lives in West Africa, now with his family. And once a year, we see each other. And when he comes up Drake Hill Road and turns into my driveway in his rental car and pulls up to the house and hops out, there I am, sitting on my porch with my feet up on the railing and a big smile on my face. Que Dieu est grand. Très bien, merci. <laughs> Indeed. Um, next up, we have Emily Spaulding. No relation to me. She spells it with you. Uh, Emily spends her winters in Newcastle, New Hampshire, and summers at Lake Winnipesaukee, from what I understand. Both are a long way from where she grew up in Georgia and Alabama. She refers to herself as a rural southern girl who longed to be more sophisticated. Yep, so know what she did? She went to the University of Miami on a baton twirling scholarship. If that doesn't say sophistication, I don't know what does. <laughs> Eventually, she found her way to New York City, where she worked as a cable TV interviewer, became a general manager, met her husband. And last year, Emily published her memoir, Red Clay Girl, which is available locally at River Run Bookstore. She says that she tells stories because you never know whom your story might touch. So let's hear Emily's story, 
my best New Year's resolution ever. Come on up. <laughs> you're going to have to explain why you're looking so youthful. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. I'd like to transport all of us back to when we were 15 and we were getting ready to get our driver's license. Can you remember how exciting that was? I was 15 and I lived in Alabama and my father had promised me that he would teach me how to drive so I could get it, my license, right away. And that was my New Year's resolution. Well, there was one little problem, and that was that I was the youngest people in the class, so everybody else would get their driver's license ahead of time and be driving around independent, and I would still be waiting for it to be November. Well, I thought, there must be something I can do to make mine special. And I thought, I know what. I'm going on my birthday to get my license. On that day, I'm going to pass the test, and that's going to be my gift in November. And the way I would force myself to do that is I found that if I told people I'm going to do this, that I was so proud that I would have to do it. And so I went around for the first six months telling everybody. And sometimes I would say, did, did I tell you? And they're like, yeah, yeah, a couple times. Mm -hmm. I even told people at the grocery store in church, I didn't care. I had to do it now. So it got to be the first day of summer vacation. It was a Saturday, and I went to my dad and said, okay, now it's time for us to get started. And he said, great. We got along great. He never said no to me about anything. And he said, but you know, I just noticed in Boy's Life, now my brother was happened to be reading Boy's Life, that there is a diagram <clears throat> and it tells you exactly how to stick shift. And not only that, on the other side of the page, <clears throat> it tells you how to do the signals. You know, there were hand signals. Our Plymouth was an old Plymouth, and it didn't, it only had a stick shift and no blinker to change directions. So I went over to my brother, my younger brother. He was so good-natured. He whistled all the time. I, I sometimes just don't think we were related. And I snatched it out, of it out of his hands and said, I need this. And he said, okay, I need to learn it to drive. And I took it out to the car. And I set it up on the dashboard. And there was the diagram. And I took the stick, which was on the floor. That's probably where the name stick shift came from. It had a knob on the top. So I pressed down the clutch and it said, it's very simple. You just make an H. So I tried that first, second, then down to the middle and over, third, fourth. And I started doing that first, second, third, fourth, until it got to be just almost like a rhythm going. So then I thought, well, that's good. I've got that down. It was this, I had it as smooth as the cream on the milk that was delivered in a bottle every morning. And so then I tried the, the hand signals. Now, this, which looked like a scarecrow, was... I'm going to turn right to the people behind me. And pointing left was, I'm going to turn to the left. And putting your hand down, but not too close to your body, is pointing to the ground meant, I'm going to stop any minute now. So I practiced that. Now, that didn't take so long to do, but I got it down pretty good. So I went back in and I said, Daddy, I'm ready to go. And he said, so he got up, and we got in the car, and he drove us to the wire road. Now, why do you care about the wire road? It's because everybody in Auburn, Alabama, learned how to drive on the wire road. It was a tiny little red clay road that just wandered around, and it had hills to practice on and flats. But the main thing is there were all farms on the edge of town, and there was no traffic, so that was good. So I started out showing Daddy what I had learned about shifting, and it was going pretty well. But once in a while, of course, I would let the clutch out too slow. And then I tried, you know, I would do the backing up, and uh, that was pretty good. And 
the thing that was the hardest is I had to stop on a hill and start, and you had to put the emergency brake on, put your clutch in, let the foot out, and let it go. Those of you who are nodding, I know that you know how to do that as well. You did that. So anyway, I got to be pretty good, and we practiced every Saturday morning. If anybody invited me to go anywhere, I said, no, I've got to practice my driving. And finally, we got to the week before my birthday, and we were out driving, and things were just going great. And I could really parallel park. And then he started telling me the thing he said after every single lesson. Now, the most important thing is stay to the right, particularly on a little road. And when you're going over a hill, it's really important because there might be somebody coming the other direction. Well, he had told me so many times, I started thinking about it. Now, next week, I can go to the drive-in restaurant, and the car hop will come out to the car, and she'll say, what are y'all having today? And I'll tell her what everybody wants, my friends. And she'll bring it over on a tray, and she'll clamp it on there, and then I'll give it out to everybody. I will be so important. And then I thought, well, now I'm still driving, of course. And I thought, well, you know, at night, I can go to the drive-in movie theater. And we'll pack as many people as we can in the car because it was only $2 for as many people were in your car. I don't think, however, that that counted the two guys that we had in the trunk who we would let out when we got inside. And I'm thinking about that. And all of a sudden, my daddy hits me on my leg, on my bare leg where my shorts were. And he said, get to the right, get to the right. And so I was doing to go into the right, he was going to the right. And I looked up, and there coming over the hill was a farmer in a truck. And he was coming right at us. And he saw us, and he pulled over to the right. He must have had practice this being the road where everybody drove. And my daddy didn't say anything. I said, I'm so sorry. We could have, I could have killed three people. I, I don't know what happened. I just kind of drifted off a little bit, and he still didn't say anything. So I looked down at my bare leg and had a red hand mark on it. It didn't hurt, but my feelings were hurt because he had never even raised his voice to me. And I said, again, I said, I really feel bad. I'll never do that again. I'll go to the right. I'll stay to the right all the time. And about that time, he picked up his glasses and he was cleaning them, although they weren't dirty. And he kept cleaning his glasses and kind of taking a deep breath. And then he said, now, Toots, I, you know how your mother hates it when we're late for supper? I think we need to go home now. And I said, yeah. He said, why don't you drive us home? So I did. I drove us home. I guess he wasn't so angry as I thought he might be. And it, pretty soon it was time to go take the driving test. And the guy was really grumpy. He came out and he said, okay, let's go. Now, let's see you go up the hill and shift and stop on, and you know, every time it would go like this or like this, he would say, oh gosh, oh no, that's terrible. Oh, I was getting really nervous. But then he said, parallel park. That's the last thing you need to do. Well, I just parallel parked perfectly, snugged it right up next to the curb. And he said, wow. And he slammed his book shut and he said, you pass, here is your driver's license. Thank you, sir. I ran out and I said, daddy, look, I got my license. Hallelujah, I have my driver's license. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. Your dad probably said, and hallelujah, I don't have to drive with you anymore. <laughs> I know that's what mine said. <laughs> Next up, we will have Annette Slattery. She grew up in Germany, where she will tell us her story tonight. She learn to live without a few things that most people typically expect to live with. 
I'll let her tell you what that is. She came to the U.S. in 1998 and has moved eight times since then. But she landed in Portsmouth solidly in 2014, has no further plans to move anywhere else, which she says is pretty exciting for her. Her story is titled, Screen Time. Come on up, Annette. So, when I was visiting my father in Germany a few years back, we were looking at old family pictures, which we often do. There was one picture which showed my brother, myself, and a neighbor's kid watching TV. And I said fondly, oh look, how happy times those were when we were still watching TV at home. Because I remember clearly that our TV broke when I was eight years old and was not replaced. My dad is a retired teacher, and he had a different take on this picture. Happy times, he said. You look like zombies. <laughs> I'm so glad I made sure that you didn't spend your youth conked out in front of meaningless dribble. A terrible thought entered my head. Dad, did the TV really break back then? He said. He, was, um, he looked a little uncomfortable, but he fessed up. No, that's just what I told you. <laughs> You and your brother were watching way, way too much TV. So I told you that the TV broke, and I moved it upstairs to the guest room. I was stunned for a moment. And then I asked the obvious question. Were you and mom watching TV behind our backs? <laughs> I believed him when he said, no. The whole family sacrificed for the dubious goal of having almost no entertainment. It also distracted him when we were coming in from playing and switched on the TV because he was grading papers in the living room. That was another reason. He thought of only moving it and um, not telling it as it broke, but then he thought he would have to start to track our whereabouts so to make sure that we weren't watching there all day long, sitting in the guest room. He also thought that he himself was watching too much TV. So he invented the broken TV and made it clear to us that he had no intention of replacing it anytime soon. Now, back then, there were only three public uh, TV channels in Germany. And contrary to my dad's perception, they only showed kids' shows for one or two hours in the evening. There were shows about Zindbad, the pirate kid, the classics Heidi, Flipper, and Lassie, and my absolute favorite, Kimba the White Lion. <laughs> I really loved those shows, as much as I loved turning my brain off on occasion. But those happy times were over now. Instead, my parents listened to public radio in the evening, political commentary, classic music. It was really yawn. All I can say was yawn. I don't think the radio had programs for TV-deprived kids back then. At least it never occurred to me to scour the finely printed, picture-free radio program for such material. Every Saturday morning, we listened to Crime Thriller on Saturday. Monday and Wednesday nights were the pop charts. And on high holidays, there was a radio play. That was it. At school, the idea that we didn't have a TV was weird. There was nobody else who shared my misery. At least nobody who admitted to it. But I didn't want to lie, and after a while, I did get used to it. We did start to fill our evenings with other things. And I also started to validate my dad's decision by pretending that I didn't really care if he had a TV or not. I didn't go as far as claiming that we were using our brains and creativity instead, like my dad wanted us to do. But I did try to imply that. <laughs> Um, obviously, I was suffering from some sort of Stockholm Syndrome, which is defined as a psychological condition that causes hostages to develop sympathetic sentiments towards their captors, often sharing their opinions as a survival strategy during captivity. <laughs> after, two years uh, after two years of this, at 10 years old, I made closer friends with a neighbor's kid. 
Looking back, I still don't think that her TV access had anything directly to do with this, but that's certainly what we did whenever her parents went out on a Saturday night. It was joyless binging on movies we were too young for and boring live shows. And I probably lost more than a few brain cells during those nights. But my dad obviously thought that's the right price to pay for a TV-free home that sets your mind free. In researching this story, I called up my brother, who is two years older than my, myself. He doesn't remember feeling weird about not having a TV. It just didn't occur to him. But he told me about an interesting conversation he had with my mother when he was in college, which means that he found out the true nature about our TV-less childhood about 15 years earlier than myself. <laughs> so back then, after the TV broke, my brother fixed it on him by himself just by plugging it back in and messing around with the antenna. He came running down the stairs. Hey, guys, the TV is rocking again. We all trooped upstairs, full of excitement, except for my dad, I guess. <laughs> At the same time, as she was now admitting, my mom slipped into the basement and flipped the breaker to the upstairs rooms. I was stunned again. My mother, who was also a teacher, she was always so supportive of our ambitions and projects. But now, without a second thought, she completely shattered my brother's budding technical confidence. It was, it was really unbelievable. She used to tell the story how my brother, at five years old, started taking apart our household appliances just to see how they worked. She was so proud. But now, now this. The senseless TV band was turning us against each other. It's good to know that my brother became an engineer anyway. <laughs> he is also the one who finally ended our Puritan ways. When I was 16, he brought home a black and white TV, kind of this size, with rabbit ears. Just because he saw it in a store, he could afford it, and he thought he might like to watch some TV. It didn't occur to him that my dad might be, might be objecting to this, and anyway, he was planning on keeping it in his room. But there was no chance of that. <laughs> The TV was intercepted and placed in the living room. The whole family wanted to check it out, and it was a big hit with all of us. We, all four of us, we draped each other around this pathetic appliances in the most uncomfortable positions, sucking up much cherished entertainment. After a few weeks of this, my dad declared our old TV fixed so that we could go back watching in style. But it was not easy going back. The TV remained in the unheated guest room, only switched on for programs and movies that you cared about so much that you remembered to turn on the radiator an hour in advance, or you would suffer the cold for. So I remember that I really enjoyed reading the TV guide and marking all the programs I would watch. But in the end, I would just often not bother. And also, I would miss out, by going upstairs, I would miss out on anything that was going on in the living room. So, in the end, even though I didn't appreciate it at the time, I would have to say respectfully, well played, Dad, well played. <laughs> It's my uh, pleasure to introduce Pat Spaulding in uh, her role as a storyteller. Pat Spaulding is a retired puppeteer who knew, now has the good fortune of doing pretty much what she wants. She writes and tells stories, is a majorette with a leftist marching band, <laughs> and the MC for True Tales Live, as tonight. Tonight, Pat will tell us about the disagreements that she and her father used to have about his extreme frugality. Although he was a man who prided himself in being a curmudgeon and a cranky Yankee who simply would not listen, Pat found that at the heart level, her father always heard what she had to say. 
And her story's title is, What Difference Does It Make? Pat, come on up. The reason I'm here is because Kathy Boss couldn't be. I'm, I'm just kind of a quick entry because, um, unfortunately, Kathy, who was all set to tell a story, got sick. So she couldn't make it. So because I'm healthy, I'm here. Okay, I'm going to take you back to uh, hanging with Dad. I was born and raised in New Hampshire. Lived here all my life, and I consider myself to be a Yankee. Like it or not, I am subject to scarcity thinking. Anything smacking of excess is just plain irresponsible. So my dad, he taught me everything I know about being a Yankee. He also lived in New Hampshire all of his much longer life, so far, well, I might, um, 88 years. But I don't think he would consider himself to be a Yankee because that would be to presume there's another way to be. And it would never occur to him that there was any other way to be. So 20 years ago, he sold the fourth New Hampshire home that he had ever owned to build a new one next door to me. He was 79 at the time and had been a widower for about 15 years. I wanted things to be in place before some major health crisis hit. And Dad? He just wanted to build a new house. So this mutual decision threw us into a proximity that involved daily contact. And often I'd go over there for dinner. Sometimes he'd cook, sometimes I would. So this one night, I was over there cooking an onion. <laughs> and he said, well, couldn't you use a smaller pan? I said, well, it's just a frying pan, Dad. Yeah, but you're only cooking an onion. <laughs> well, I'm going to add peppers and, and garlic, and besides, I need a more flat surface to push them around on. Well, can't you push an onion around in a smaller pan? Yeah, but what difference does it make? you got to wash the pan after you use it. You think it's easier to wash a smaller pan than a bigger one? Of course it is. Makes a smaller job. I'll wash the pan, Dad. Ah, oh, no, no, no. It's my kitchen. I'll wash the pan. But I want to use a bigger pan, so I'll wash the pan. Well, don't get yourself all worked up about it. Do what you want. What difference does it make? And so ended another one of our daily household conversations. A couple weeks later, I was sitting across from Dad at his cluttered kitchen table. We were both drinking martinis. Um, I had a toothpick that pierced two olives. Dad had a toothpick that pierced one. <laughs> and we're both looking out the back window at about five inches of late March snow that had accumulated on the deck. So dad lifts, lifts his martini glass and he says, to snow. And I lift mine and optimistically say, to another day of skiing. Nah, too late in the season for that. Clink. Conversation goes on for about 10 minutes. And then he says, yeah, probably not gonna like this. No, Dad, probably not, but try me. Well, you know that old double bed I've been using? Yeah, the one you and my had at the other house? Uh-huh. Make any difference to you if I sawed off the bottom of it? Sawed off? Uh, uh, why? Well, you're always complaining. If I do anything around here, change something or sell something or get rid of No, Dad, no. No way. I don't mean... Why would it make a difference if you sawed off the bottom of the bed? I mean, why, why would you do that? You mean the, the footboard? Yeah, guess that's what you call it. I can't make the bed. Uh, it's too hard to get my fingers between all those little spindly things, and I can't lift up the mat mattress. It pinches my... It's a poor design. It's nothing but a piece of junk. It's an antique spool bed, Dad. 
It's an antique piece of junk. Well, that's all it's going to be if you saw off the footboard. I know you get yourself all worked up. You don't care about none of this junk I got around here till I say I'm going to get rid of it, sell it, do something different, and then you get all upset. Well, geez, Dad, can we just, we can move one of the single beds downstairs. No, I don't want to go moving beds up and downstairs. Why can't we just saw up the one that's already down here? Because it's an antique spool bed, Dad. Because it's the, the bed that you and Ma used to sleep in. Well, that hasn't happened for a good long while. Dad, I'll help you move one of those beds downstairs. It'll, it'll solve the problem. That'll be just as hard to make up. No, it won't. Yes, it will. I mean, it's got a, it's got a footboard on it, too. Mind if I saw that one off? You know, Dad? It's not an antique. If it makes you feel better to saw off the footboard, go ahead, do it. What difference does it make? So, at the um, end of dinner that night, I was doing the dishes. Dad goes upstairs, takes apart the single bed, and I come up afterwards, and I see he's got a, the mattress and box spring up against the wall. They're pretty dusty. So I tell him, I'm going to go downstairs, get the vacuum cleaner. And he says, nah, I'd rather just sweep them off. Again, I want to ask, why? But I said, okay. And go downstairs to get the vacuum cleaner. Anyway, when I come up, Dad is meticulously brushing dust bunnies off the edge of the mattress and the box spring into his dustpan. So I tell him, while you're finishing that, I'll vacuum the carpet. And he says, couldn't you just sweep it? Sweep the carpet? Um, no, I'm, I'm going to vacuum it. So then he asks, well, why fill the vacuum cleaner with dust when you can just sweep it into a dustbin and throw it away? Fill the vacuum cleaner with dust? Dad, you think that's a bad thing? Well, it just means you gotta go to the store to get a new bag. You gotta take the old one out and go to all that trouble and bother and expense. And besides that, I don't care what this place looks like. I'm the only one living here. What? difference does it make? It makes a difference to me, Dad. It makes a difference to me, because I can't stand to see you turn into a dusty old man living inside a dusty old house, and don't tell me that I'm getting all upset about nothing, because it makes a difference. It just does. I watch my father bend down to brush dust bunnies off the carpet for several long moments until he stood with the ease of a much younger man and he stared out the window. Snow was still falling. Then he turned his watery blue eyes on me and he asked, you doing anything tomorrow? I know. I said it was too late in the season. But it's supposed to be a nice day. Maybe if we get an early enough start before the snow gets all mushy. Want to go skiing? Yeah, Dad, it's not too late. Let's go skiing. <laughs> so those kind of disagreements were OK. I learned a lot from my dad. <laughs> and 
The older I get, the more I realize I'm becoming an awful lot like him. I don't know if there's a good thing or not. Coming up next, we have Sharon Jones, who is currently writing a book about growing up right here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where she was raised inside a very close family of 13 children. Not even counting the two parents, that's 15. <laughs> She's going to tell us a little bit more about that, too. Sharon moved to Los Angeles for a while to study voice and became an accomplished performer who toured with legendary jazz artists all across the country. She currently performs throughout New England, where you can catch her act in Portsmouth at Demeter's, Steakhouse, The Dolphin Striker, Press Room, Rudy's, or in Boston at the Beehive and the Beat Hotel. Still doing that tour, Sharon? And um, <clears throat> she's going to tell us tonight about a particular experience she had as an adolescent growing up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Her story is titled, Come In, Make Yourself Comfortable. Come on up, Sharon. Never got comfortable on the stage, believe it or not. Well, <laughs> I'm just gonna put. I, I have a couple of notes there, just to make sure that I I'm accurate and I'm not doing um keeping the facts straight, if you know what I mean. This story that I'm about to tell you takes place in the year of 19. 54. I was a teenager. We lived in a large house on Maplewood and Cut Street. It was sometimes referred to as the Cut's Mansion. And how we came to live there was my sister Anna joined the army. And when she came back home, she wanted to uh, nice house for my mother and father, so she used her GI Bill to, to purchase that house. I can remember thinking all of the time how lucky I was to be able to roam around in a house of that magnitude. It was magnificent. Lots of rooms, big house, big family, very loving and attentive mother and father who attended to ten girls and three boys. I was next to the youngest, my sister Karen being the youngest, and when we came along, the other siblings were quite grown, a lot older than we were. And I can remember this particular summer, 1954. I mean, and we all lived in that house. It wasn't like we were neighbors, they were spread all over the place. Everyone lived in that house. On the third floor, there were two apartments, and my older sisters lived in the, those two apartments. My sister Marge claimed a room on that same floor because she was kind of a prima donna, and she had plenty of shoes and plenty of clothes, and she wanted that little spot up there. Well, this particular morning, I ran down the stairs, as I always did, and I'd always hear my mother say, Sharon, walk! And I'd stop, and I'd skip, and then I'd start running down the stairs again, this long stairway. Well, the cereal boxes were always on the table in the morning, and I loved going down there on a summer morning and grabbing that cereal box and putting the milk on the cereal and then running down to the cove where there were blueberries and raspberries that you could pick. You just bring them home and put them on your, on your cereal. Now, this particular morning, as I came down the stairs, I heard my mother and my sister Jane uh, whispering. Well, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it. And dinner time rolled around. Dinner, dinner time in that house was, it was like a conference. <laughs> my father loved 
to talk about protocol and how important it was to know protocol and how important it was to know when to stand and when to sit and when to speak and when not to... And we had to hear that a couple of times a week. Remember your protocol, you know, I know your protocol. And uh, he also believed that you could say a whole lot by not saying anything sometimes. And we'd come away from that dinner table with a lesson every time we pulled away. And I was comfortable in that house. It, my, my mother oftentimes, the neighbors would come by and she'd always come on in, make herself comfortable, and she'd go and get some muffins or some cake or tea or something. Everyone was always welcome there. We had jam sessions on Sunday afternoons with Tom Barron and local musicians would come by and sometimes there'd be 25 musicians in that living room. And my father would be there playing this trombone, my brother Tom on the bass. You know, my mother would be bringing food in and I'd be just looking because I was not old enough to take part, but it was exciting. And I couldn't imagine myself ever having to leave that house and leave my family members, whom I loved so dearly. We were friends, we were family, we didn't argue, we had some disagreements, but nothing that we didn't get over. It was mandatory in our house that before we went to bed, you said, I love you, and that when you uh, awoke in the morning, you said good morning. Those were standard things in that house. But th back to the day that I was walking down the steps and heard this whispering. Well, there was a lady in Kittery Point who had converted an old house into a bed and breakfast, and she needed a young teenage girl to go there and help her um, and assist her with uh, serving her guests and, and so on. And my mother and my sister Jane were talking about this because they knew it was going to be quite a problem to get me to go there. And uh, they finally sat me down and said, Sharon, I, we want you to go over to Mrs. Sinclair's house and we want you to get involved. You're very shy and we want you to learn how to get more involved with people and how to... And I cried all night and then the next day, um, Mr. Sinclair, who was a, a chauffeur, uh, drove up to the yard and I got into the car, into the back of the car. I felt like I was this big, sitting back there waving goodbye to my, all my family standing around like I was going to Europe or Japan or somewhere. I was only going to Kittery Point. <laughs> and uh, so I got to Kittery and Mrs. Sinclair and Mr. Sinclair uh, had this beautiful little bed and breakfast where the garden, they grew their own vegetables and Mr. Sinclair would go out and get the veggies and, and she would cook and make muffins and fried chicken and cornbread. She was from the South, I believe. And, uh, and then she said, well, come on, Sharon, come along here. This, we got it. These people are coming back from downtown and we're going to have to put their dinner on the table and here, hand them this, put that on the table over there. Sometimes I'd be just stiff standing there looking because I didn't know anything about this. And I, you know, I was next to the youngest in the family and they fed me. I didn't, I didn't help anybody. So, so I, I, I learned how to move about and learned how to get comfortable in that bed and breakfast. It was small and clean and light and comfortable and airy, friendly. Well, as it turned out, the guests who were coming to visit and coming to stay there, if there were, uh, was a funeral in town or uh, a wedding or they just wanted to come to the seacoast, this was owned by Mr. and Mrs. Sinclair who were black. And all of their guests were black because when they came to the area, no one would allow them to stay at any of the bed and breakfasts in the area, any of the hotels, 
none of the motels. So this became their place to stay when they came to town. Well, she only served two meals a day. She served breakfast in the morning, hot blueberry muffins, the whole thing. It was wonderful. Then they would, the guests would disappear for the rest of the afternoon and come back around five or six o'clock and we'd serve dinner. And in between those times, there was really not a whole lot to do. So I would sit back and read or watch Mr. Sinclair putter around in his garden. It was a, a whole new life, different from where I lived, where there was plenty of action, a lot of people, noise, and interesting stories. And my father, we even bought him a gavel for his birthday one year. And uh, he, he loved it. He would sit at the end of that dining room table, and boy, he said, you know, I love to hear you children talk, but one thing that bothers me is that I want you to talk one at a time because I can't understand it, and I can't get the gist of what you're saying if you're all talking at the same time. And then he'd take that gavel and he'd hit it, and we all bounce back, you know, and do it. Now, this is all right. So I spent the whole summer at Mr. and Mrs. Sinclair's um, home, their bed and breakfast. And it was different. It was a different life, and I got over being homesick, and I started taking in things that I hadn't noticed before. Her guests who talked about, most of them were from the South. They were all black and well-educated, and some doctors and some nurses from Atlanta and Mississippi, and they... And then they'd spend time and leave, and the next group of people would come in. And I remember saying, boy, this isn't too bad. I'm kind of glad that, that my mother made, uh, uh, suggested that I, I come here. Well, we came to the end of the summer. You know how it is in New England. You can feel the air change, and you can, the ocean smells a little bit different toward the end of the summer, and the breeze starts rustling up a little bit. And you can feel that it's getting ready to change. Well, the weather was changing, and people were getting ready to leave. But I was changing. I had changed also. I had missed being home with my family, my sisters who gathered around me. I had a sister for every day in the week and one left over. <laughs> and the three brothers and very tight, very close. And my father always says, you know, this not only is your family, these are your friends. This is what you have, this body of people here. Stay close to them. And we always did. Mr. and Mrs. Sinclair, I got very, very um, attached sort of to them. They uh, were wonderful, caring, stern, but affectionate, and they were great teachers. At the end of the summer, as well, Sharon, we're going to take you back home. And she fixed up a little basket of corn muffins and some other little treats there. I got back in the back of the car, the same car that drove me there. And we headed back into Portsmouth, up the long driveway at Cut Street. And before I end the story, I wanted to let you know, though, that the uh, Smithsonian National Museum of the African American History and Culture has some of the items that were in the bed and breakfast. They're there now. You may, if you, if you go visit, and many of you will, I know I'm going, you might see a chair or some fine silverware, a blanket. She also had badminton sets for people to play when they were there. They have those items at that museum in Washington, D.C. now. It was a great experience. I didn't think it would be. I cried for a week. And then I stopped crying and took it all in. When Mr. Sinclair dropped me off back at the house, 
All the siblings came running out like I'd been gone for seven or eight months. I was only gone for the summer. It was a great experience spending that time with Hazel and Clayton Sinclair. I'll never forget it. But it was good to be home. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks to tonight's wonderful storytellers and to you, our studio audience, and also our audience that will be watching this program. Coming up in a little bit, we'll hear an interview of one of tonight's storytellers, but first, let me share some information with you. True Tales Live will be back on February 28th with the theme of Apologies and Regrets, which still has some room for storytellers. Email us at truetaleslive one at gmail.com if you're interested in one of those spots. If you would like to tell a story here at True Tales Live but are unsure of yourself or want some help with your piece, come to one of our monthly workshops held here at PPM TV. These workshops are on the first Tuesday of each month and they run from 7.30 to 9 p.m. and they're right here, right in this very spot, right here. Where is it going to be? Here. <laughs> They are free and open to the public, and the next one is next Tuesday, February 7th. <clears throat> True Tales Live will continue at PPM TV every last Tuesday of the month from 6.30 to 8 p.m. in front of a live studio audience, which you are invited to join again. The show airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m. and will be available under the True Tales Live playlist as video on demand at www.youtube.com slash ppmtv. Let's give our thanks to some of those who helped make this show possible. Pat Spaulding, Steve Koval, John Lovering, Bill Humphreys, and Chad Cordner. Until our next True Tales... Let's do it. <laughs> Going too fast, too fast, too fast. Slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. Slow down. All volunteers all the time, and we appreciate everybody's help. We really do. So, until our next True Tales radio show, on behalf of all of us here, thanks for listening, thanks for watching, and now we'll go to Pat Spaulding in just a few minutes for the storytelling interview.